All right, so in a few minutes, there's stuff under the first rows right here that I'm going to ask you guys to pass out. Um, but I might ask Dylan, I might get you to run some from the front row because people don't sit on the front row here, except you guys. Thank you for that. Uh, some pins and stuff to our, our back row, whether they knew it or not, back row Baptist back there. Um, so if any of you guys do want to come up and feel awkward, you can come up and take a seat. But otherwise, we'll, we'll get stuff to you in a minute, just like Uber Eats or whatever. All right, so today is going to be a little bit different. Um, and this, I, I tell you, like, it's weird. I, when I transferred from Clemson to Bible College, like, hitting the reset button on my undergrad, like, I never intended to be a pastor. Like, that was not my intent. And there were two things that I told God that I wouldn't do out loud, which is ignorant, to even tell God you won't do things. One was I told the God that I wouldn't move back to Greenville, which I'm, I live in Greenville now, and I love Greenville, and so that's pretty funny, but I also told God that I wouldn't be a pastor. Out loud. I mean, I said it. I'm like, God, these two things. I'll do anything else except move to Greenville and, and be a pastor. Because I had been told by my prophet grandmother, and if you want to argue about that, you can, but she was. My grandmother legitimately was a prophet, and she would have never called herself that. But she told me I was going to be a pastor from a young age. And I was like, you're crazy. You're out of your beautiful, gray-headed, amazing mind. Um, but I told God I wouldn't do it. So when I went to, to Bible college and kind of hit the reset button, I did Bible and Bible teaching. And so my caveat to God was, I don't want to be a pastor, but I'll be fine teaching in an academic setting. Because my brain kind of ge is geared towards that. I love the academic side of, of learning and, and process. And even though I hate school, which is really funny, but I don't mind teaching people in school. And so I remember student teaching uh, for a semester to second graders. That was my student teaching grab in, for a semester. I taught second graders Bible. And that's, that's a chore, believe it or not. And so today's kind of going back to that one semester where I want to think about, you know, teaching from that perspective, except you're a little bit older. You're not in diapers, which is great. Um, and so I'm going to try to raise that up a level or so and, and teach you from that perspective. Um, but just to kind of let you know where we're going and, and why we're doing what we're doing. And some of you guys have cheated and already have your handouts. Now listen, students. Listen. Colin, come on. Y'all are an overachiever. Peer pressure, overachievers, okay? We need to talk about that. But in a minute, you can grab the things and pens and look around for people that don't have them. You might have to help. Like I, I tried to calculate where people would sit. I knew people wouldn't sit here, but we put some things there anyway. Um, but here, here's the framework and the reason that we're talking about this. We've been in this kind of this identity series of who we are, talking about like we exist to make disciples who love God, love one another, love the city. My standard operating procedure for pastoring is, is exegetical in nature. And so I want to look at a large chunk of scripture, and I want to dig into that huge body of, of, of writing and just learn everything that we can and what we do with it. Why was it important to them? Why is it important to us? What, are the, what is the eternal significance to it? Over the past few weeks, we haven't been able to do that. We've been a little bit more looking at, you know, small sections that shape and form our identity. And today's even going to be a little more of a step outside of my standard comfort zone. Um, but we're going back to that first week when we talked about the overarching premise of who we are, kind of the umbrella statement of why we exist is we exist to make disciples. And so we started week one by saying before we talk about what that looks like and how we do it, we have to talk about what that is. And we looked at Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus called his very first disciples, and he told them very simply, come, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And from that, we get our working definition that a disciple is someone who is A, following Jesus, someone B, someone who is being changed by Jesus, and C, someone who is on mission with Jesus. Because he said, follow me, so that was the following, I will make you, I will change you, and then I will make you into fishers of men. I will place you on a mission that I started, you did not, but you're going to partner with me in that. 
So a disciple, holistically, is someone who is following, being changed, and on mission with Jesus. And that's, that's the target for us. Like I always look right and say, if there's a bullseye on the board for what we exist to do, that's it. We are trying to be that. We are trying to reproduce that. And if there's something that we're doing that doesn't lend itself to that, we're not going to do it very long. Like, you know, we'll implement, and if it doesn't go towards making those things, then we're going to kill it. And so that may mean that our calendar is not very full. It may mean that things are simple, and we want them to be. It's going to mean that we don't rely on a structure or a building or anything like that. Um, It's just who we are. We are a family in this city for the glory of God to make disciples who make disciples. That's it right there. And so we kind of add to that a little bit. You know, these disciples are, you know, for us, our values are we're going to love God. We're going to love one another. We're going to love the city. And today, I want to kind of go back to that first week of making disciples. We set the bullseye or the target or the identity of that, the definition. And today is kind of the first of two weeks as to, whoop, the computer's making noises. The first of two weeks of like, okay, so how do we do that? So today's kind of the starting place for us in how we make disciples. Going to start in an odd place in the Bible for this. We're going to turn to 1 Samuel. If you have your Bibles open, it's going to be on the screen as well. And another small confession, too. I got food poisoning Friday night, um, so I didn't have coffee yesterday, and I, I have this morning, and man, I feel it. Like, that's, that's crazy. You take 36 hours away from coffee and, uh, you know, do a, a, a bacterial cleanse, like, you know, stuff just hits different. So I may be a little jacked up with no tire to change this morning, but we're going we're gonna to work out. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into this passage. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you so much for Jesus, that through him and to him, God, we can be known by you. Uh, God, thank you that we don't have to trust in our works or our goodness. We get to trust in his. And as a result, God, there's a story in us that you have made that we get to tell. Um, And God, we get to reproduce your goodness that you've placed in us and others. Thank you for the mission. Thank you for the calling. Thank you for the equipping. And thank you for the beautiful responsibility of seeing people give their lives to you and grow in their understanding of who you are. Um, God, today as we look at your word, I pray that we look at it well, and as we think, God, about our past and our present and our future, God, I pray that you give us clarity of thought um, and clarity of mission. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So 1 Samuel, uh, we're going to be in chapter 3 for just about 10 verses, but to lead up to this, 1 Samuel is named after the guy Samuel. Samuel was, um, he was kind of the last judge of Israel, and he would transition from judge uh, to king, he would not be the king, but he would usher in that transition. And there was a period of about 400 years in which Israel did not have a king because God says, you don't need a king, you have me. And they rebelled. They were stiff-necked. They were hard of heart, all of those things. And he said, okay, well, I'll appoint judges. They did some crazy stuff. If you ever want to read a crazy book in the Bible and you have young boys, maybe young girls too, but young boys, they need to hear the book of Judges. It's nuts. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, Read through that. And so Samuel would be a priest and a prophet, and he would also be that guy who would usher in that change. The first king who would be Saul, which had dramatic failure, ultimately would lead to David. He anointed both. Uh, But before that, there was this woman named Hannah. She would become Samuel's mother. Hannah was barren. She had no kids. Uh, And she just declared to God, she was like, God, if you give me a child, I will lend him to you. I will loan him out or give him to you. And that's what happened. Uh, We see at the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, we see that she did finally become pregnant. And she took the child to Eli, who was this priest in the temple during a very quiet period for the people of Israel. And she said, look, here's my son. Raise him. 
He is God's. I am trusting you to, uh, to instill in him everything that he needs to know, everything he needs to do. I'm giving him back to God. So she prayed for a child. God gave her a child, and she immediately gave him back to God. And so then in chapter 3, this is where we find ourselves. And I'll, I'll point out why all of this makes sense in just a minute. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had, had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord God called to Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Verse 8, the Lord called to Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down. If he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lie down in his place. From there on, verse 10, it says, And the Lord came and stood, calling at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. From there on, the Lord began to speak clearly to Samuel. One of the very first things that he would have to do was pronounce judgment on Eli for the way that he had raised his sons. But he began to speak. And, and the reason that we point out this passage and point out this text is, is just a simple reminder, the same reminders that we have from Moses to Joshua, Elijah to Elisha, and then later in the New Testament with other examples that we will share, is that we were made to convey information relationally. And I know that's a, a large thought. We were made to convey information relationally. We learn in a ton of different ways. We gain information in a ton of ways. We can read it. We can hear it. Uh, we can uh, perceive it in so many ways. But when it comes to this idea of discipleship, I do want us to be clear and understand that while there are multiple environments that we'll talk about that discipleship occurs, the best way, and I will say that emphatically, the best way that discipleship is going to occur is going to be through relationship. We have multiple examples of the Old Testament in which this knowledge and understanding and truth was conveyed through this. And we can even go back to the very beginning in the way in which we were created. Regardless of how you look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, uh, we look at it and we see that it says, And God formed the man from dust and breathed life into him, exchanged in a very intimate and personal way, life from God, life to man. There was a relational exchange even from our creation. And we were made like this imago Dei or imago Dei of in the image of God. And we even see like the Trinity was present then and they knew each other. They were known by each other. They were together. And when we were created in the image of God, we were created already with a DNA of relationship built into us. We weren't created to be these isolated people walking around by ourselves, bumping into walls without anyone telling us to stop. We were created to have exchange from one to another. And we see that truth is conveyed throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament from one face into someone else's ear over and over. In this particular case, we have the example of Samuel to Eli. In this case, like a very real-world example, Eli, unless he was there, Samuel would not even know that it was the voice of God speaking to him. 
He needed someone else who had had time with God, who had had that time in the saddle that we talk about with God to actually say, look, I I know what's going on here, and you keep waking me up. Would you please stop? It's God that's talking to you. And the reason that Eli knew is new because Eli had heard it. Eli had heard about it. He knew what it was when he came. And so Samuel just needed that one other person that had been with God longer, that actually knew him to say, what you're hearing, what you're experiencing, this is God. Go lay down and wait. And when he calls you, say, here I am. In Hebrew, that word would have been hennii, which means uh, here I am unfurled, ready to do whatever you want me to do. He had already said it three times to Eli, and now Eli was instructing him, go back, say it to God when he calls to you. I'm here. I'm your servant. Do with me whatever you want. He needed that other person, that other individual If we go to the New Testament, we can flip and and we can go to Acts chapter 1. I mean, Acts chapter 14, 16, pardon me. Like I said, coffee, food poisoning, it's everywhere today. Acts chapter 16, verse 1, probably our best human-to-human example of what discipleship in the New Testament looks like begins in Acts chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by his brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him, circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. And they went on their way throughout the cities. They delivered to them for observance their decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem in verse 5, which may not be up there, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily." If you flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 1, later in this relationship, Paul is saying to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan the flame, uh, into, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of the power of love and self-control. Probably our, one of our best examples in the New Testament is that relationship of Paul to Timothy. He brings him on as a son. A lot of people are perplexed or vexed by that circumcision, but they were going into a place where it would have been necessary for them to serve. So he had him circumcised as, as either a teenager or a young adult rough, but either way, he had that done. But then he took him on as a son. And everything he knew that God had been speaking, teaching to him, even through his time as a very devout Jew, he was going to convey to Timothy. And then calling him, equipping him, releasing him to do the work of a pastor, just like he was. And it's a beautiful example. And all throughout Scripture we have these, but the the chief example that we have, and we we pointed to it the very first week that we talked about who we are, is always going to be Jesus to his disciples. Always. From the very first time that he called them, come, follow me, I will make you fishers of men, all the way until Matthew 28. Therefore, go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I will be with you through it all. From there to then... Everything in between, he was investing in them. He was equipping them, ultimately, so that he could release them. It's the way that he made disciples. And so he just invested. And a majority of his time was spent with just 12. 
I mean, we see the high points. We see the high points, which we'll talk about kind of three different environments, but we see the high points. And, but then understand, there was a lot of time that we don't see written about where they were just walking. They were just sleeping. They were just eating. It was him and the 12. Just him and those 12. When we look at Jesus, we, we do want to ask the question, like if he is our chief disciple maker, the perfect example of what it looks like to make and release disciples, you know, for me, I kind of ask, what are those areas or ways that he did that? And there were kind of three areas, three basic areas. We could break these down further, but for us and for the way that we're structured, there were three. There was the large group time with Jesus, like Sermon on the Mount kind of stuff, where he's speaking to a ton of people, one speaker, hundreds, maybe thousands of listeners, still conveying truth still equipping people with truth, still allowing them to follow, be changed, be transformed, be on mission with him, but it was one voice to many. And that happened. He did it frequently. And then the other time, though, the bulk of his time was spent like going from that very many to going to just the group, the twelve, spending time with them, teaching him. You even see sometimes after that large, large, massive gathering, sometimes he would pull away to just the twelve and be like, look, Maybe they don't understand this parable that I've just taught, but let me, let me tell you what it means. So to bring it down a little bit further. But then we also see him separate himself sometimes, like during the transfiguration, he just took three. When Jairus' daughter had died, he just took a couple. There were other times when he just took those few so that they could see something deep, incredibly personal, incredibly significant. And so for us, we have a, a quick little graphic of triangles that I want to throw up here, and it may mean not much to you, but it's... It's important to the way that we function, and we try, to, we try to dwell. And so for us, we take those, and we kind of translate those into three different environments for us as a church. And we're about to get to your doodling, okay? Just don't worry. We're about to get to doodling. I'm about to be done. Um, and so at the very top, we have, like, corporate worship. And we've got these two triangles. The two triangles on, on your left represent the number of people that are involved. On the right, relational access, so how deep you can, you can get with people relationally. And so the corporate worship thing, like at the top of that, that triangle there, the most number of people that we'll ever have in a room listening at the same time. This is us right now. Like this is corporate worship for us. It's a gift. It's amazing. It is supernaturally dwelled in. It's very, very good, and it's incredibly necessary. But here's the issue. Not negative, but just something that we want to point out. I'm the only one talking right now. I can't hear from you. I can see your faces, but I don't truly know what you're thinking. I don't know what you're saying, but it's incredibly valuable. Jesus did it, and Jesus did it better than any of us. But one person speaking, multiple people listening, one truth being talked about, one God being talked about, one Savior, one mission, all of those things, that's incredibly good. A lot of people, but very little relational exchange. But it's necessary. And so if we go down the continuum a little bit, we have this, this small group idea for Jesus. It was the 12 uh, for us in our, in our community group type settings. We say 6 to 16 adults. This is our setting here. In this case, the number of people goes down, uh, but the relational access grows. Because now we have a facilitator in the room. We may call them leaders, but in all honesty, we equip them to be facilitators. They're just helping a conversation go. Okay? They, they may throw out questions, like we do sermon recap. If you're not in a community group, most weeks we do sermon recap, which means we talk about this, and then we talk about the application in groups. Like, what does this mean to me? What is God doing in me? What do I need to do? And so we get to share that with the we's. Not the video game system, but the other people sitting in the rooms. And so more than one person speaking... You know, we can start to get to know each other and, you know, actually get to hear struggle, hear successes, hear wins, failures, all of those things. And it's good. Truth is still conveyed. So the number goes down, but the relational access goes up. 
And then we go down a little bit further. The IDR stands for Intentional Discipling Relationships. I know, very, very catchy. Um, but in this part, the number involved gets very, very small. For us, these are what would be our discipleship groups, which is one-on-two, one-on-three, at most kind of an idea. And it's really still not one person speaking. It's, it's a group of, of three to four people reading the same text, talking about the same God, talking about the same application, but in each other's lives. And in this case, it's the least number of people involved, but it's the most relationally accessible that we'll be. Like, and all of these are necessary. Like, they're all necessary. There may be a season of your life where you're, you're only involved in one or two, but throughout the life of a disciple, we need to seek and strive for and equip you as a church leadership structure to have opportunities to be involved in all three. And as a disciple who's trying to follow Jesus, let me be honest with you and be very clear with you. We're not doing this just because it's catchy and we want to fill your time. We're doing this because we see the way that Jesus invested, the way that he called, equipped, and released, and this is what he did. This was the way that he functioned. He spoke to the many, he spoke to the the group, and then he spoke to the few. All so that they could know him, they could follow him, they could be changed by him, they could be released to be on mission for him. That's why we do it. And so, like, to be honest, we need to strive to be individuals who pursue time in each of these places. Like, just to put that out as a charge for each of us as individual followers of Jesus. And as a church, we need to make sure that we're doing everything in our power, everything in our capability, everything in our well-intended plans to make sure you have opportunities to thrive in each of these. And so that means we, we keep things simple. Um, we want them to be something that you can jump into and you can be up to speed within a week. So we keep our community group simple. Had some incredibly encouraging emails and texts this week from some community group leaders, and I won't call them out, but most encouraging part of my week, just some leaders saying thank you for allowing us to lead groups. And I couldn't even respond that night. (laughs) I couldn't. Like, I could not type. We have to provide opportunities for us to grow, and the way that we grow is together. Together. So this is, this is what I want us to do. Go ahead and pull out your sheets. You're going to look at the incredibly complex line first. The almost blank side with no words on it at all. If you're sitting in the back, uh, Dylan's going to run some pens and some papers back to you. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven, eight adults back there. Christine's even coming up to be super helpful. You rock like Van Halen, Sammy Hagar Van Halen, by the way. I didn't think any other issues of Van Halen rock that hard, but Van, yeah, anyway, sorry. I got problems. All right, so we've got an incredibly complex line here. The rest of this, the rest of this morning is, is going to be, uh, you're going to get about eight minutes to do this, eight minutes to do the next side of the paper. Um, and I'll go ahead and tell you, like, if you're in a community group this week, don't lose these. You're going to take them to your group this week, okay? Don't lose them. You're going to take them. You're going to talk about them. And so what you're going to do on that first page, um, we've been sharing our stories in our groups the past several weeks. And so this is just kind of another layer of that. And I'll, I'll give you application and why that's important in just a second. Uh, but if you have your sheet on, on this side, the side without an arrow, this is your beginning, okay? This is a timeline, timeline. Okay, so this is your beginning or somewhere in here. And here's your goal. 
Uh, as we've been sharing our stories, we talk about our stories in the context of what was my life like before Jesus? How did he grab my attention? How did I respond? What's my life been like since? We can still think about that in here, but, but here's our thing. We want to think about the people, the environments, and the circumstances that God used to change us. Okay, starting from the very beginning, or maybe even before the beginning, like on mine, like I've, I've filled these out a couple times, um, and whether you know it or not, like I, I also do some contract work for the South Carolina Baptist Convention. I've gotten to do some writing for them over the past couple of years, some discipleship training. A lot of this, this is where this is coming from, some of the stuff that, that we do, whether you know we've done it with you or not. Um, and so a lot of this, when I fill my line out, there's like, consider me being born here, because there's some things before I was born that God used to change me after I was born. Uh, for instance, one thing, my grandfather was a raging alcoholic, a gambler, abusive husband until he was 32 years old. Then in the basement of his home, like God wrecked him, like wrecked him. I wasn't there to see it, but I got to feel it because it changed the entire trajectory of my family, the entire trajectory. My sweet little saintly grandmother, at the time in which he was giving his life to Christ in the basement of, her ho- of their home, she was at a worship service at their church praying that he would, and he did. So I would even go back to the inception of faith for my grandmother God using to affect and infect my grandfather, him being changed even before I was born, about 33 years before I was born. And then at my birth, it, it had changed my parents to such a degree, they made sure to, to make sure that their kids had repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel. They were doing the very best they could. Were there answers they didn't have? Absolutely. But they were working hard. And so some point after here, about the age of six, no doubt, I gave my life to Jesus because of the work of my parents in my life, because of the work of my grandfather in their life, because of the prayers of my grandmother for him and his life. See, so I'll start. And so I would write down my grandfather here. And then I would write down my parents and nightly devotions that we had in our home. And then if I went a little bit further, I would, I would write down like Tony Qualkenbush, who was my youth pastor. That guy was hard on me, and I needed it. He was tough on me. I remember several conversations which he called me into his office, and I never wanted to hear those, but it was necessary because I was a legalistic 16-year-old that thought I knew everything, and I knew nothing. And he had to correct me. He could correct me because he was a legalistic teenager that Christ had changed and renewed, so he knew what to look for. So Tony Qualkenbush. And then circumstances. FCA, when I was at Clemson, was pivotal for me. Got involved in small group Bible studies with guys like Tony Pesci and people like that that spoke truth into my life in small group settings. And then just moving down the line, all of these things. So there were people, there were circumstances, there were all those things. So for the next seven minutes, as the music plays, that's what I want you to do. We tried to do the thickest cardstock we could do because we didn't want to buy 150 clipboards. Sorry about that. Um, And so you're just going to start at the beginning or before the beginning. Write down the people, the events, the circumstances that God used to bring you where you are today. That's all. We'll reconvene in about eight minutes, seven and a half. Hit that music. Five seconds. Finish it up. You can do it. You can take it home and finish it there, too. All right. So let me, let me get a show of hands. <clears throat> if you're looking at your page, how many of you feel like there are more names than events? More names than events. Okay, that's okay. That's okay. More events than names? Should be about the rest of you if we're doing math. <laughs> when we, uh, we used to have a partnership in, in Edmonton, Canada, uh, with a church planter up there, and I don't know if you've ever been to Edmonton. We've, we've had partnerships in places where we're just very post, post-Christian. 
and Edmonton's one of those places. I remember walking around and in uh, one of the neighborhoods specifically that we were we were serving, like there was this spiritual weight of lack of God there. Like you could just feel it. It was palpable that the Spirit of God was not there um, because Edmonton is a place that is devoid of the gospel, devoid of church growth, that kind of thing, which is why we were partnering um, with a church planter up there at the time. But I met a guy named Stephen. Stephen had us over to his house for dinner one night. And you may know I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with people's stories, and I, I want to hear how they got to where they are. Um, and, and I think it's a great question, so I just kind of asked him after he served us delicious Canadian beef, which I'll be honest, it's one of the best steaks I've ever had. I don't understand uh, why it was that good, but I love a good New York strip, and that was one of the best I'd ever had. But I just asked him, I was like, hey, man, just like, you know, you're Canadian, eh? And so tell me, like, how did this happen? Like, how did you get to this place of following Jesus, being in love with Jesus, and, and even though you live in Canada? And he began to list, like, going back to late high school, just one name after another, uh, of someone that just invested a little here, and then someone added to it a little bit later, someone added to it a little bit later, and he listed four or five names before he got to the place where he even said that uh, this is where I feel like I gave my life to Jesus. It took four or five people just investing a little truth here, a little truth here, a little truth here, until God used all of that. Faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of God to redeem him and change him and save him. Um, And so it's just a great reminder that in this American evangelical culture, we're very event-driven. And again, there's nothing wrong with event. Because like we talked about, in that large setting, Jesus used that. But there's also this relational exchange that we need to focus on. And so here's your next step. The names of the people that you wrote down, circle them. Go ahead and do that. You can do that in about 12 to 18 seconds. If you have names written down of people that, that God's used to invest in you, to, to convey truth, that God's used that to grow you and change you, circle those names. And just as a quick mental exercise, what would your life be like if those names were missing from your life? What would your life look like if those names were missing from your life? If they had not conveyed that, maybe that single line of truth that you needed to hear, or that week or month or year, however long it was, what would your life look like now? And I know that's, that's hard to answer, but I can, I can give you the short version. It would probably be a lot different. It'd probably be a lot different. Every time I do this, I, I'm convicted to do something, and I'm going to kind of push you to do it. You don't have to. Okay, it's optional. I can't make you do anything. But I would encourage you, like the people that made the biggest impact on your life whose names you just circled, when you leave today, I would encourage you to text them or call them and just say, hey, I don't even know if you know that you did this for me, but I just wanted to say thank you. My life is different because of you. Maybe just shoot them a text or an email, something like that. Um, and every time I do this, to be honest, I remember different people, additional people. My line gets thicker every time that I do this because I remember it may, have just been, it may have just been a weekend where someone was intentional, convictionally intentional with something they, they gave me, something they invested in me. And I'm always convicted, like, just to say thank you. You don't even know that you were doing this, maybe, or maybe you do, but thank you. The next thing that we're going to do, hold on to that. You can't let it go because what you're going to do is on the next, <laughs> the next page, just flip it over. All right, I'm going to go ahead and give away the ending. I didn't intend to. Um, We're going to fill this out. Let me me tell you why. Here's the why. You're about to write down names of people that are in your life that are already there. And not the country song already there because it's incredibly cheesy. I got a lot of references today. I'm sorry. Those aren't illustrations. That's just ADD. Um, You're going to write down names. 
And, and here's the reason why. When you're done, you're going to ask the question, whose line do I need to land on? And I know that sounds incredibly cheesy, especially for me, but it's the reality. I mean, the line's on the very back of the page right here, so I can't not do it. Like, whose line do I need to land on? We circled names of the people in our lives that invested in us, that gave us something that God used to change our lives. And we're about to write down the names of people that are already in our life, that are already in our circles of influence. And at the end of it, I just want us to ask and be honest, God, who do you want to use me to affect? Not for my glory, but for yours. Not for my eternity, but for theirs. Who do you want to use me to affect? And so this is the way we're going to do it. So not a bullseye, but this innermost circle right here, you've got some blanks right here. And, and these are your closest, closest earthly relationships. If you have a family, if you, if you have a husband, wife, and kids, those are going to go in that first blank, those first three blanks. If you have more than three in your house, that's fine. Add a line. But your closest earthly relationships, like the people you know best and the people that you know best, write those in that first blank. Okay? After you do that, uh, these, this next level, um, top right of your page, top left of your page, pardon me, top left of your page, those are going to be just that next level out. Maybe not the closest people you have, but the people just outside of that. Who are they? What are their names? Okay, and you're going to do like, basically like four levels of this. Okay, super close, close, and then the next is going to be like what we would typically call, typically call our neighbors. We talked about neighbors last week to a degree, but these are just going to be your neighbors in the sense they may be literally your neighbors. You know their names. You know a little bit about them. You have a bit of a relationship with them. You're going to write them here. And then this, this last blank, these last blanks here, these are going to be the people that you keep running into, but you just really don't know them very well. There's a chance of a relationship there, but it's not there yet. Who are they? Who are they? All right, here's what we do next. We've got it populated, all right? And this, this is where it gets a little hard or a little tricky, and I'm going to go ahead and release you from guilt in what you're about to do. We are not judging, okay? Uh, people take Matthew 7 out of context all the time. We're, we're not going to talk through that today, but I'll tell you what we're about to do is okay. Uh, we are to know them by their fruits, and that's okay. So to the best of your ability, you're going to answer these next questions. Of all the names that you've written down, um, you're going you're gonna to put a couple things beside their name based on what you know. The first is you're going to put a plus beside every name on here that you know has a relationship with Jesus, okay? That you know for a fact that if you, had, you know, if you had to bet everything in your savings account, and I would advise against that, but if, if you had to do that, based on what you know about them, the fruits that you observe in their life, um, that you could put a plus beside their name because you know they have a relationship with Jesus. Put a plus beside their name. Don't stretch, because if you're like, I don't know, there's going to be a mark for that too. So just a plus if you know. We're going to go with the definitives first. The names that are on your list that you know for a fact, or you know as close to a fact as possible, that they do not know Jesus. They are far from Jesus. Not rebellious, knew him, followed him, running away, but like they don't know him. They have no gospel primer in their life. Circle their names. You're going to circle their names. The people that you have existing relationships with that you know do not know Christ. Circle their names.
And the last one is just a question mark. Believe it or not, that means I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. Put a question mark beside their names. These are for the people that are, don't know what to order when they go to a restaurant. It takes a little too long. Very comfortable with question marks. I'm kidding. They're okay. Question marks are all right. All right, so now we put it together. I already gave it away. You thought about the people that God used to change your life. They didn't change your life, but God did. But as a result of what they did, what they invested in you, God used that to change your life. You've just written down people that are already around you. You don't have to go and find them. They're already there. And that very same truth that was invested in you, God could very well use that for you to invest it in them to see their lives change for eternity. Whose line do you need to land on? Whose line do you need to land on? This is not to elicit guilt. That's not the point of this. This is not to make you feel like, man, I am doing a terrible job. No, no, no. This is to make us look at what God has already granted us, the opportunities, uh, the relationships, and the ability that God's already equipped us with that are already around us. Sometimes what it takes is for us to take what's normal and to make it intentional. To take what's normal and make it intentional. I know that about 75% of our people that are sitting here on, on standard Sunday mornings are involved in a gym. Like, I already know it. Like, if we did a, a fittest of the origins contest, it would be a mess, and somebody would get killed. I mean, it would be bad. Um, and that's okay. But this is what I know, because I've, I've lived in gyms my entire life. Like, that is my first space. Like, I know gyms. Like, that's, I, I know that language. I love the smell. Like, I love going home with rust on my hands. Like, I need that, and I crave it. It's my best place for iron induction is, is that. Uh, but I also know this. Some of my deepest relationships and the people that I know best are the guy that was squatting beside me. Because we talk. You know, if you're in the powerlifting world like I am, you're guaranteed three minutes between sets. And in that time, when you're breathing heavy after a three-rep set, you have time to talk in between heavy breathing because we're in such great cardiovascular condition. And so that's okay, but there's, there's a relationship there. Uh, there's a guy currently at the gym that I, that I work out at, and I, I, messed, I, just, I, I didn't mean to mess him up, but a few, like six, eight months ago when I started getting back in the gym after some, some accident stuff, um, like God had placed him on my heart, and he's a huge, massive man of a man. Like he, he looks like a Viking, and I'm not. And he just kind of came by and he asked me how I was doing, and I was like, "Man, I'm I'm doing well." I said, "But I'll be honest. I said I've been praying for you and your wife." And he just went white. He's not a Christ follower. Doesn't know Jesus at all. He's like, "Why? What's wrong?" And I'm like, "Dude, nothing, nothing, nothing. I just I'll be honest. Like God placed you on my heart, and I just felt like I've, I should pray for you. And I didn't even know what to pray, but I've just been praying that God would take care of you and your family. And and I've just been praying that you're well." And he was just like, he didn't even know how to take it. He didn't know how to do it. And he was still scared. And he walked away and he kind of doubled back. He was like, are you sure everything's okay? I'm like, I'm sure everything's okay. But I just want you to know that I'm praying for you. And that relationship's already there. I didn't have to go fishing for it. It was there as a a result of the things that I pursue, the things that I enjoy, the things that I chase. If you have kids that play baseball and soccer and football, you're surrounded by other parents that are yelling probably louder than you at the referees. They're there. And you have an opportunity to speak to them in between breaths. You've you've got that. Like there are people already in our lives that need to hear about the hope that Jesus has placed in us through him and only through him. But in order for that to happen, number one, we we have to see them like Jesus. 
we have to look at them and see that they are a life, a human made in the image of God that deserves the same effect that we have to love our neighbor as ourselves, to want ultimate good for them the same way that we want it for us. And that is, like we talked about last week, that is Jesus. But there's also people in your life, you, you may have put a question mark by their name. You may have put a question mark because you're like, there, there are some, some evidences there, but I'm not really sure. They need the same truth. They need the same truth. It might, just, it might just be a bit different. It may just be asking a question. Hey, you know, I just, I just wanted to share my story with you, and I'd like to hear your story. And upon hearing their story, you might be able to fill in that question mark, whether or not they do know Jesus. And if they do, that's great, but maybe they need to understand the way in which you've matured through Christ, and you get to invest that through them. It's still discipleship. And maybe even those people that you put a plus beside their name, you know them. And, and you love them, but you also know that, that maybe they're struggling with a sin that God's given you victory over. That God's given you victory over. You haven't earned victory, but God has. And so maybe you just need to sit with them, talk with them, be like, look, hey, I've heard you say this in community group. Um, I've heard you say this at the gym. And I, can I just share with you what that's looked like in my life? Can I just share with you how, number one, I saw it as sin. Number two, how I dealt with it uh, through Christ and through Christ alone and, and how he's given me victory over that. Can I, can I help you with that? Can we meet on a regular, can we grab coffee, good coffee, on a regular basis that costs me something? Can we just meet and talk through that? Maybe it's as simple as that. But the truth that God has placed in you, he doesn't place it in you just for you. He doesn't place it in me just for me. He places it in here for the us, for the we, the family, for this organized organism that we are called the church. That's why it's here. So here's what I would challenge you to do this week. Number one, hold on to these. Take them to your community groups this week. You're going to ask questions uh, and talk about these. But I would encourage you, that the names that you circled, those that had this huge, massive impact on your life, like reach out to them this week and thank them. Thank them. Maybe even say, look, I, I would love to, can I, can I just, you know, can we meet for breakfast? I'd love to talk to you. And just convey to them what God did through them investing in you. Thank them. But the people on this side... Just start to pray for them. Start to pray for opportunity. Start to pray for boldness. Start to pray for your intentionality. And start to pray that God could do what only he could do, that he could change their lives. Not so that you could brag about it. Not so that you could put a notch on your leatherback Bible. But just so that you could know that God changed someone's eternity because the truth that he invested in you, you invested it in someone else. And that's discipleship. That's what it is. It's us taking what's been invested in us and investing it in someone else. It's not complicated. It's just taking what we already do and just making it a bit more intentional and asking God to take control over it. That's it. And I'll, I'll give this away too. Every one of us who have been changed by Jesus are capable, equipped, and called to do it. Everyone. Everyone. None of us escapes that responsibility. So this is what I would like for us to do before we just kind of have some announcements. Look at, your, look at this, and this morning just pray for one name on there. Regardless of, their, regardless of what mark they have beside their name, regardless if you put a plus or you circle their name or you put a question mark, just, just begin today just to pray for them. And just, just ask that God would direct you how you can love them best, how you can serve them best. Maybe they're one another, maybe they're a neighbor, either way. Um, how, you, how best you can love them, what that looks like. And then I would encourage you tomorrow, pray for them again. And then on Tuesday, pray for them again. Wednesday, Thursday, you get the point. 
begin to pray until God just says, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. Um, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll have some announcements. God, we love you. Um, I love you. Thank you, God, for changing my story through people, through circumstance, yes, through events, yes, but through the people, those people who um, I know that my life would not look like it does without them, uh, God, because you used them. Uh, you called them, you equipped them, you released them, uh, and you enabled them, God, to share the hope that they had with me. God, I thank you for them. Um, I thank you for men like Cliff and Walt and Tony um, and Jack Moore. I pray for this organized organism of origins. God, I pray that we would see that this faith that you've granted us is not an accident. It's not private. God, it's the hope of all mankind. It's the hope of all mankind. And Father, I pray that we would see that and we would believe it to such a degree that we are compelled to speak of it. We're compelled to share it. We're compelled to be bold with it, transparent with it. Regardless of what the culture says, regardless of what status quo is, God, that we must share what we have seen and what we have heard in the presence of many others. How can we not speak of it? And God, I pray your kingdom would grow as a result, that your glory and renown would grow as a result. Um, God, not so that origins could become bigger, but so your kingdom could, so your kingdom could grow. God, thank you for a mission that's bigger than us. Thank you for the power that we did not ask for, but you granted us. And God, thank you for the hope that rests only in Jesus. God, we love you and we thank you. And it's your son's name we pray. Amen. Um, like I said, hold on to these. Um, if you see, uh, if you look around and you see some people that are not here that are in your community group this week, grab some spares for them. Have them fill them out like community group leaders. If you hear me expressly, like if you look around and see that there's some people that are not here, grab some blanks. Have people fill them out in your groups. Um, I'll send you digital copies as well, and you'll, you'll get an email about that. So a couple of announcements for us today, and then uh, Ashley and Bowen's going to come up and share our benediction before we leave.